This is the Annex, the sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York, Queens College. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Our guest today is Michelle Silver from the University of Toronto. Her book is Retirement and Its Discontents, Why We Won't Stop Working Even If We Can with Columbia University Press. Today, Chase tweets financial advice. Our discussion was recorded on Wednesday, May 1st, 2019. All right. So a couple days ago, about a week ago, by the time you hear this in podcast land, um, Chase Bank, uh, which in the interest of full disclosure, I should say, holds my FDIC insured deposits, (laughs) uh, tweeted out from its account, you, why is my bank balance so low? Bank account, make coffee at home. Bank account, eat the food that's already in the fridge. Bank account, you don't need a cab. It's only three blocks. Mm. You, I guess we'll never know. Bank account, seriously? (laughs) Hashtag Monday motivation. And people lost their shit about this. You would never Mm. think that so many people would be following a bank's uh, (laughs) Twitter account. I'm happy to give them my money, but I've never felt the need to indulge in their humor Mm. um, or helpful updates or whatever. And people got mad about this and basically saw it as, you know, blaming the victim or, you know, uh, and this is of a piece with the whole like you know millennials aren't buying homes because they're wasting money on avocado toast, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, kind, of, kind of thing. And then you know probably the cap of it is that uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, she didn't quote tweet it because it was quickly deleted, but she tweeted a screenshot of it mm. and she said, uh, Chase, why aren't customers saving money? Taxpayers, we lost our jobs, home savings, but gave you a twenty five billion dollar bailout. Mm. Workers, employers don't pay living wages. Economists. Rising cost plus stagnant wages equals zero savings. Um, by the way, I will notice that in listing economists, she does not list a consumption arms race among uh, dual earner couples bids up the price of um, positional goods, mm-hmm. uh, which a certain law professor uh, made the cornerstone of her scholarship. <laughs> uh, and then uh, that, back that to- law professor is Elizabeth Warren for people who- are- Yeah, that's the, uh, the two income trap. Yeah. Um, and, and then back to uh, Orange tweet. Chase, guess we'll never know. Everyone, seriously, money motivation. Okay, so, um, you know, this contains volumes in terms of like consumer finance and, mm. you know, in particular, the kind of common advice you have for uh, balancing your budget that you should cut out uh, everyday affordable luxuries that add up. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the $4 or $5 cup of coffee, the $15 of takeout. Yeah. Um, the $12 cab ride, all of which are things that anyone can easily afford occasionally. But if you make a habit of them, they actually do add up to, well, actually, that's kind of the, the point. Do they add up to a they, lot of money? Or they don't. Are they, they, they don't, they okay, don't so, add up. So why don't you tell us? So I'll, well, first of all, I'm happy that this is topical because it's uh, so, something that's related to my own work. But yeah. I, Plug your book. Plug your oh, book. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, available yeah. uh, on uh, from Prager Press, American Crisis or Financial Crisis in American Households, 2017 Prager Press by Joseph Nathan Cohen. All rights reserved. Uh, no, in all seriousness, in my uh, uh, when I studied this, the, the the price of food, the price of entertainment, telecommunications, the stuff that people say we spend our money on, we actually spend a lot less. Uh, than we did 20, 30 years ago. Uh, well, most of that stuff is uh, deflationary. Yeah, for right? sure. So, Used to have to yeah, pay like for I, phone like calls. I, I bought a pair of uh, sneakers late, 
recently, and it, you know, it occurred to me that it was a pretty nice pair of sneakers, but it still cost uh, about two thirds as much as a comparable pair would have cost when I was in high school. Yeah, no kidding. Well, the way I like to think of it is if you enumerate prices in minimum wage hours, it gives you a pretty good idea of what something costs. And, you know, people talk about uh, how expensive cell phones are or lattes, but really those things amount to, you know, you could buy jeans at Costco for two minimum wage hours, like that $30 pair of jeans or that $25 pair of jeans. That's two minimum wage hours. Well, likewise, you can, get a, you can get a pretty solid Android phone for about two days worth of minimum wage labor. Yeah, totally. And, and what my research found was that the big things that people were spending their money on were the types of things that Elizabeth Warren was talking about when she was an academic, uh, health care, housing, uh, education, uh, commuting, child care. Those are the things that uh, automation and uh, importing haven't made cheap. So what do these things have in common? So one thing they have in common is Bommel's disease, mm. uh, with the exception of housing, which is not a Bommel's disease issue. Mm. But the the other things are all Bommel's disease, which is to say they involve highly skilled labor, at least they, they're, they're labor intensive, sometimes yeah. skilled labor, sometimes unskilled labor, but they're labor intensive. And as you see increasing productivity in the manufacturing sector, mm-hmm. you should see prices rise in the service sector. Um, and, and then the other thing is with housing is that it's inherently scarce, mm-hmm. um, particularly when there's supply constraints. But you know we already talked last week with Cristobal about how supply constraints uh, drive housing prices. Although you know as we've been alluding to, mm-hmm. um, you know Warren's academic research uh, before she entered the Senate was largely about how housing prices get bid up because housing, especially housing in good school districts and that sort of thing is inherently scarce. Yeah. And so people are bidding against each other to bid up the price. You know, it happens all the way down the income pyramid, though. Like, so for example, you will find people in sort of lower middle class neighborhoods who are reaching to get into more firmly middle class neighborhoods. And everybody's trying to afford as much house as they can, just because they want to get a foothold in uh, a non-distressed community, or a- or in California, you have the opposite, where you have middle-class people uh, bidding for houses in lower middle-class neighborhoods because they've been priced out of middle-class neighborhoods because the supply is so incredibly constrained. Yeah, you know, I live in an apartment, which I'm I'm not complaining, but just when I sit and use it as like you know a very near to hand um, N of one data point. Mm-hmm. Like I do not live in uh, an apartment that you'd expect an upper middle-class professional to live in. It's it, frankly, it's old construction. It's kind of run down. Yeah. It's a nice location and um, you know, it's, it's a thousand square feet, but um, you know, there's cracks in the bathroom, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are the things that are really expensive, but the problem is, is that mm-hmm. if you point out to people that, and, and, and what happens is people don't realize that it's stuff that bankrupts them because what happens is you experience childcare as a temporary shock. You're like, Oh, I just got to get past this bump and then I'll be fine. And then I just got to get past like paying for my kids summer camp until they can watch themselves and all that. So it, it looks like these are all weird, discrete shocks, but all of them are basically a product of, a system that doesn't really socialize the cost of like well-being essential products. And, and, and what Chase is doing is something that's very common in, in the, you know, the, the, the financial advice industry. They personalize things because people aren't interested in structural factors. They want to know life strategies. Well, also, you know, from the, you know, if you are giving someone advi- advice, 
Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, let's say that your your cousin was asking you for advice on balancing their budget because they're carrying too much credit card debt. Mm-hmm. It's not practical to say, well, we should have gone back 20 years ago and had a policy <laughs> counterfactual, yeah. right? The thing that they can actually control is how often they buy Starbucks. Yeah. The thing that they can't control is whether um, – you know, uh, daycare is expensive or college tuition is rising at triple the rate of inflation. That yep. is outside of their control personally. Now, they could control whether to forego, whether to get the uh, catastrophic health plan versus the gold-plated health plan. Right. Or whether to get the uh, fancy pants uh, daycare or whether to go into the, you know, the retired woman who lives on the corner and, yeah. you know, ho- hosts a, a daycare in her backyard. Um, but they can't... They, you know, individuals have no power over structure. And so the practical yeah. advice you can give them is, you know, save $5 on avocado toast. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really hard. You're right about that. Because on one hand, people want practical information. And I find that they'll turn to you and be like, well, what should I do? And the best I can say is like, well, all of my research suggests that you're kind of screwed. Uh, yeah. You need structural change. This reminds me of a joke I heard a long time ago that uh, econ is the science of how people make decisions and social is the science of how people have no decisions to make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's part of it. It's it's discouraging and dispiriting. But like, uh, I, I was glad to see that people now pick that out for what it was because, you know, when Elizabeth Warren first made those arguments in the early 2000s, it, it, it was seen as a very novel point of view. And it, it goes to show how, how much of a lack of faith has sort of filtered down into the culture with the, these types of easy. Well, well, you're saying um, since she made those arguments in the early 2000s, which implies that she's making the same argument yesterday that she was making mm-hmm. uh, 15 years ago when she was a law professor. And, and I think there's obviously some things in common, but there's also some differences. Uh, you know, I mean, she's, so she's making this like populist thing about, uh, you know, the like bank the bailout. bailout. Yeah. yeah, whereas I, I don't think it's actually clear that um, uh, bank bailouts hurt the average consumer, right? Because the yeah. you know the bank bailouts were mostly in the form of loan guarantees, and those loan guarantees were basically repaid. Um, <clears throat> so you know, aside yeah. from incentivizing risky behavior on the part of the banks, it, they didn't actually cost the taxpayer that much. Um, and the counterfactual where the banking system collapsed would have been pretty damaging yeah, it been very bad <laughs> i think you would have felt that you know <laughs> oh it would have been really bad people don't people forget that like in 2007 there was crazy stuff like the commercial commercial paper markets were failing and like money markets were about to fail like uh you could have seen people's 401ks wiped out and you could have seen massive housing price collapses which is where most people hold their wealth in their home. Yeah. And it would have resulted in like a massive destruction of wealth. Look, now she's posturing. She's a political candidate. That's right. Uh, and those well, are the well, sacrifices. Also, the, the main thing she's she's leaving out is like a big part of two-income trap. Is, I mean, it's right in the title, right? Mm-hmm. She's basically saying, I mean, in some ways, the upshot of two-income trap is extremely conservative, right? And it's basically mm-hmm. saying we were better off when we had uh, – male-headed households with stay-at-home moms. and But there's no way that you could say that even running as a Republican, let alone as a Democrat. I didn't interpret her study that way. 
Uh-huh. What? Because the thing is, is it's, it's important to remember that to work in a strict financial sense, two working parents create income redundancy are almost better off with two fifty thousand dollar earners than one one hundred thousand dollar earners in a, in a sense, because if one person loses their job, you still have half the income. I think that what her problem was, was that there were unintended consequences of this. Well, yeah, she was describing women's labor force participation as a red queen race. It was, well, it was, yeah, I mean, I I mean, I guess there's some interpretation into it. But like the way I saw it is that people got that slack money. And I get, you know, what happens is these are all markets where selectivity is a thing. This is something that comes up whenever we talk about the college admissions scandal too, right? Like, Part of what these positional goods do is their purpose is to exclude. There's only so many people who can be privileged. That's right. Status status is a zero sum game. Yeah. And and anything that involves uh, sorting is a zero sum game, right? I mean, a lot of these goods involve basically I am paying for access to a good peer group that I consider desirable. Yeah. And the good the desirable peer group is inherently scarce. Michelle, do you feel that pressure in Canada? Like, is there a crowd to get into the right neighborhood there too? Uh, do you have to overpay because you want your kids to be in the right right school district? Or I don't see that here. Um, I feel like it's more everybody thinks their neighborhood is special and loves it so much. Um, <laughs> you know, here you can live in a great neighborhood and have a great, or you know, in a regular neighborhood and have a great school. Um, you know, the public system has French immersion. You don't have to pay extra for that. Yeah. And there's lots of them. So, I mean, I think, you know, you know, <laughs> Joe, you know, Canada, it's, it's a little bit more um, evenly distributed uh, in terms of access. But y'all do have a housing bubble. Definitely. And unlike ours, it hasn't popped yet. Oh, yeah. And, and, and so so what explains the housing bubble? I mean, and it, I, I'm pretty sure it's concentrated in a few cities like Vancouver and Toronto, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so, so what explains the housing bubble if you don't have you know, competition for neighborhoods, or is it just that the housing is kind of scarce in metropolitan areas overall? Housing's absolutely scarce. Like single family detached houses are very rare in our urban centers. Mm-hmm. Um, condos are going up everywhere. Um, there's like five going up, you know, within a kilometer of my house. And it, you know, it's, it's, uh, but it's definitely scarce. There's no doubt about that, that housing is scarce and houses per se are scarce. Yeah, like even mm-hmm. bad neighborhood, even what were considered bad neighborhoods in Toronto are quite pricey. No, they're pricey, but you know, like I lived on the south side of Chicago before <laughs> before moving to Toronto. I, I I don't know if there's, I don't know if I would say we have bad neighborhoods. I don't see them <laughs> bad neighborhoods. That was one of the things that I observed when I was doing uh, my book and comparing the United States and Canada too. Is like the floor gets really low. And so I feel like everybody's desperate to more desperate to be not poor here than they are there. And some of that, I think, makes the struggle of everybody trying to. Well, it makes sense, right? Because America has a higher crime rate than Canada. And to the extent that crime is concentrated in low income neighborhoods, it would you know, make it so that you're more uh, it's more scary to end up in a, a poor neighborhood in the United States than in Canada. Oh, but there's so much more, right? There's crime. There's also like, are your kids going to have sports and art if they go to mm-hmm. the poor neighborhood school? There's also like, you know, when the when the 
crisis, when the financial crisis happened, poor neighborhoods, their housing values got hammered the most because there were the most number of people who would default who shouldn't have been there in the first place. Mm -hmm. I also think there's just less on the extreme end, you know, like to go back to the discussion of luxury goods and services, like when I go to the grocery store, there just isn't, there's options, but there's not a million options the way... Um, you know, when I go to the US and I go to the grocery store, it's an overwhelming experience just to, you know, pick one shampoo or one ketchup, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's like so many options. You're just saying that because the brands are less familiar. When I when I go shopping in Canada, I'm like, what are these products I've never heard of? What's Rogers Wireless? I've never heard of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and is it overwhelming? Do you find that overwhelming? No, because I'm a, I'm an American. I was born in consumerism, molded by it. By the time I saw, well, I mean, I was, brand, too. I was already a man. I, I'm from Los Angeles, where you yeah. know, like the the you know the consumer yeah. <laughs> goods are endless. But um, you know, but I would say that you know, there's definitely a a, a tighter range here, yeah. mm-hmm. and there's more just sort of medium good. Medium is going to be good enough. In any case, I I didn't like that chase thing, and I would say to people like, if you're hearing this, don't don't let don't let people put this on you, or don't let the people put this on like irresponsible. Well, there are people who spend irresponsibly, yeah, but the vast majority of Americans are actually quite good with their finances. Like very few. I was surprised when I looked at the data how few people are in credit card debt, for example. Well, and also the the thing that all this consumer advice overlooks is that a, a big source of going into debt is either A, emergencies, or B, the demands of kin, who you feel you can't turn down. Yeah. And so Fred Wary, who we really should have on sometime. Totally. Oh, my God. You know, he's been working with uh, consumer finance for poor people for a couple of years now. And mm. you know, a big part of it is, which you know, appropriately enough, because he was Viviana's student, um, is basically how to say no to your deadbeat relatives, <laughs> which is really awkward but also really important for, you know, uh, poor people's consumer finances. And you make a good point that spending is personal, right? So to what extent do is like some big corporate company giving me very personal lifestyle advice have any impact? I would argue that most people are sort of like, can you please stay out of my private uh, choices? Well, they're not tweeting, you know, uh, screenshots of your checking account. You know, <laughs> saying you know that you personally that you Elizabeth went to. Uh, I'm sorry, that, like, you know, eat the yeah. food that's already in the fridge. I mean, it, it seems like I don't know. It makes me wonder. Like, you, I mean, you heard about uh, um, Amazon's Alexa-powered microwave and how they're going to like link up so that we can, um, you know, the microwave can tell how many bags of popcorn you're making and then yeah. order it and then just like put it in your queue for you. And it, it, this is makes me wonder, like, what is my bank attached to my refrigerator? Yeah, right. Well, it will be soon enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if they'll necessarily sell that data to uh, Chase, but you're right that Amazon, mm-hmm. which, you know, I don't know about you, but Amazon accounts for a pretty high proportion of all my consumer spending because it's just so convenient. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it, it's actually easier for me to just order something on Amazon. It like if I'm in the store, it can be easier for me to pull up my phone and order it on Amazon than to find the item on the shelf. You know, that's how. Convenient. And it's probably going to be cheaper too. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, so, you know, but the the sheer fact of how much consumer spending we do, and then on top of that, like you said, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Amazon is pushing very hard for people to have um, I don't know what you call them, but basically smart speakers in your mm-hmm. home. Um, I personally won't have one because I don't want it listening to me. And there's been all these things where people have shown that 
they retain the recordings and, um, you know, it gets false positives and uh, they're not very well secured. Uh, did you guys uh, follow this thing about, it wasn't a uh, Amazon product. It was a similar Google product where mm. the, uh, a toddler, a family was using a Nest camera as a baby monitor. And mm-hmm. the uh, this kid who was, I think, three, so basically an older toddler, was uh, telling her mother that there were monsters talking to her at night. And then the monster came, excuse me, the mother came into the nursery one night and overheard pornography being played over the baby monitor speaker. Oh, my God. And <laughs> and it turned out that somebody had hacked the uh, Nest camera. And then I think this was in the Washington Post um, about a week ago, uh, two weeks ago, by the time you hear this. And, you know, the, they'd hacked it. And, you know, then they interviewed uh, Google and Google said, like, well, they didn't have multi-factor authentication turned on. And then the mm-hmm. person's like, you know, yes, we did. And then it was talking about more broadly th- that these devices are insecure by design because if you make it secure, the average consumer won't be able to set it up, hmm. right? I mean, you just want to be able to ring your fucking doorbell. Yeah. You don't want to have to like, you know, authenticate it with a cell phone text message. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. I, I, I have speakers all over my house and yeah. I live by them. My wife made me take it out of our bedroom though. And I guess yeah. that sounds like it was a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> I will say one last thing on the Chase thing. If I were to guess what's going on with Chase, I would guess that that marketing is targeting people who are already well off and they are feeding back uh, a piece of advice that the intended audience would want to give to young people. I don't think it's that strategic. I think it's just they have some social media intern who's some 25-year-old kid and it's just, you know, trying to come up. I don't think that they you know, yeah, totally. playing this like it was a Normandy invasion and are like, uh, uh, we're going to pander to our upper middle class consumer stereotypes of the poor. I think it's just like, yeah. we, we got to put out tweets and we got to say yeah. something. <laughs> the social media kid was just didn't, was churning out content. Yeah. yeah. You're fired. overthinking what some 25 uh, year old communications major is doing. <laughs> just as long as they keep it like unlinked from what's in my refrigerator and then from my healthcare possibilities, um, then, then I guess it's, they can do what they do. I think that's a tall order, Michelle. Or you could always just make really random purchases just to keep them guessing, just confuse the <laughs> algorithm. Like, why did she buy 400 road flares, you know? Yeah, and then you'll be watching road flare advertisements for the rest of your internet <laughs> surfing life. And you know how I know that? Because when I'm on the net, you should see how much My Little Pony crap and garbage <laughs> like that gets advertised back to me. You know how that, what drives me crazy about that is normally I don't care. I figure like, well, if I'm actually shopping for something, I, I kind of like seeing the ads for it if I'm actually thinking of it. But when you're giving a presentation in class and for some <laughs> reason you have to show something through your web browser and then yeah. it's like, you know, and then all your students are like, why is he into My Little Pony? <laughs> Always <laughs> incognito mode in front yeah. of class. That's right. Always in. Listeners, if there's nothing else you get from this uh, segment, it's use incognito mode. Well, you know what's funny about that is last time I used a web browser in class, I was showing them uh, Oracle of Bacon, right? So that they could see how many degrees of separation two actors are from each other in the internet movie database. And I did it in incognito mode specifically so it wouldn't show my personalized ads. And I'm showing like Mm -hmm. Ashley Madison ads. Yeah, well, that's probably what's popular. Yeah, and I said, look, this is in incognito mode. This doesn't reflect my personal browser history. This is just the default for, you know, a generic scumbag, not me's personal scumbag. Yeah, yeah and your students were like, mm-hmm, 
Yeah, because they don't know about cookies and shit like that. They just see it on the ice cream. Uh Oh, Uh, still waters run deep, Professor Rossman. Yeah, that's right. Well, my my stuff that shows up is all about like death and mortuary funeral <laughs> homes and and uh, and retirement. Yeah. That's that's what's up for mine. So I guess, but I you know I don't mind when it's convenient, but that kind of stuff is not yeah. necessarily grim. Professor Silver. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Special thank you to Michelle Silver from the University of Toronto. Her book is Retirement and Its Discontents, Why We Won't Stop Working Even If We Can with Columbia University Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter, at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisseth Moreno. On behalf of Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.